Good evening, City Light. My name is Doug, one of the pastors for our church. Gavin said at the beginning, I'll say it again, Good Friday is a, it's a unique gathering for our church. Most of our gatherings are characterized by celebration and joy and fun. Um, but tonight's different. Good Friday is more characterized by grieving, um, lamenting, mourning. Good Friday is when we specifically look back at the death of Jesus Christ. And it, it was good, but it was dark. Over 10 years ago, I made a trip to Colorado to see my then-girlfriend, now-wife, um, and visit her for a little while. Both she and Colorado were beautiful. It was summertime, and Colorado was just soaked in green and warmth and just the bright natural light that is in Colorado. Whitney was working for uh, a ministry there that they were reaching out to and building relationships with homeless teenagers in the Denver area. And to give me and her and kind of this small group of people a, a sense of what it's like to live in lostness and live without hope, they took us down into a large sewer tunnel. And I still remember kind of ducking down out of the bright blue sky, down into the musty, wet darkness of that sewer tunnel. And we get in there, and then the leaders, they urge us, they tell us to keep going a little further. And I didn't know how I felt about that, but I didn't want to look like a chicken in front of Whitney at that time. And so I did what they said. I kept going, and I remember every so often I'd look back, and the, the daylight just grew farther and farther away until eventually Whitney and I and this group of about 15 students, we were enveloped in darkness. It was, it was so pervasive. I was scared. I felt disoriented. I so wanted to open my flip phone at that time just to get some sense of, of light. It was so pervasive that it felt like you could reach out and actually touch the blackness of it. We had been plunged from light into darkness. And so it was with Jesus on Good Friday. He had lived his life in the warmth and the, the brightness of the Father's love for him. But on Good Friday, in his crucifixion, he was plunged into the darkness, into resounding silence. Just darkness so dark and silence so stark that he could taste it. But even that wasn't enough. You see, the darkness wasn't enough. There also had to be blood. There must be blood. It was, it was necessary. It was required. It was mandatory for Jesus to spill his blood. It wasn't just enough for him to have a bad day or a dark day. It wasn't just enough for him to go pay a fine or do some time in prison. Jesus had to spill his blood. And everybody in Jerusalem and everybody around the city of Jerusalem at that time, they knew that blood must be shed for sin. They knew it 
because it was Passover in Jerusalem at that time. While Jesus' blood was spilling right outside the city, inside the city of Jerusalem, there were thousands of families who were remembering and rehearsing the story of the Passover. The story of the Passover, it goes all the way back thousands of years to ancient Egypt. And it's recorded for us in the pages of the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. In Exodus chapters 11 and chapter 12, the story goes something like this. Through a series of events, God's people, they found themselves in slavery in Egypt. Egypt was ruled by Pharaoh, and he was just a ruthless, self-worshipping God of a man who had exalted himself. But God, he raised up his servant named Moses, who was a reluctant leader. God raised him up to go confront Pharaoh. But every time that Moses confronted Pharaoh, things only got worse for God's people. They had to do more slave labor, but with fewer resources. They were beaten. They were cursed. They had so much pain inflicted upon them. And so God, he literally waged war against Pharaoh. It's a war that most of us know as the plagues. It was a war that only God could finish. And in these plagues, in this war, God systematically picks apart Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's river gods of the Nile, God destroys with the plague of blood. Pharaoh's field gods of the harvest, God destroys with locusts. The sun gods and the sky gods, God destroys with darkness. And on and on it goes through the plagues. But as these plagues keep coming, Pharaoh only grows harder. He digs in his heels and he hates God more. Until eventually we come to the tenth and the final plague, which was the death of of the firstborn all throughout Egypt. It was the most costly, the, the most deadly, the most violent plague of all. And first, God sends his servant Moses to go and warn Pharaoh. And God makes it clear through Moses that this is all about God having a people for himself. As much as Pharaoh might want, as much as Pharaoh might try, he can't have God's people. God will have his people for himself. And so God is going to carry out this plague under his control, under his sovereign power, to show his authority over and against Pharaoh. And God reports it to Pharaoh this way in Exodus 11, verses 4 through 7. You can follow along. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. And all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God warns Pharaoh. 
And then after warning Pharaoh, God prepares his people for the Passover. The Passover was God's appointed way of delivering his people from the death of their firstborn, of delivering his people from his wrath. And these are the instructions that he gives them. He says, get a pure, spotless lamb and then keep it for four days. Now, parents, if you were were to go get a little sweet, cuddly lamb and keep it for four days, what would happen between that lamb and your children? Children, think about this. What if mom and dad came home with a lamb and they let you keep it for a few days? Those kids would get attached to that lamb. They would love that lamb. That lamb would get woven into the fabric of that family. And so that's what God tells them to do. But then he goes on and he says... At twilight on the fourth day, kill that lamb. The most important detail, that precious and perfect lamb must be slain. There were no other options for the Passover other than the death of the lamb. And then he told them, take the blood from that lamb and brush it across your doorpost and your lintel. They were living in tiny slave houses with barely a doorway at all. But God said, take the blood from the lamb and I need you to brush it over your doorway. And then God explains that blood like this in Exodus 12, verse 13. He says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, the blood is the distinguishing mark for God's people. The blood is what set them apart, not their previous suffering, not their hardships, not their sin, not their idols that they had accumulated. It was only the blood of the lamb that set God's people apart from the Egyptians. And God said, when he sees the blood of the lamb, he will pass over them. No plague will befall them. So God gives them all these instructions, and then he goes on and he tells the parents how to remember the Passover for many generations to come. There's a reason that he had them buy that lamb four days in advance. There's a reason he wanted the children to fall in love with the lamb, and that lamb to get woven into the fabric of the family, so that they would remember. God even spells out a script for parents to rehearse and memorize and tell to their kids over and over again in the coming years. And he says, I want you to remember this Passover forever, not just this year, not just the next year. And so what would happen is these children would hear the story of the Passover over and over and over again, and then they would grow up, have children of their own, and then they would tell the story of the Passover over and over and over again. Each year they would reenact, relive, retell the story of the Passover So God gives all these instructions to his people, and then his people respond. They respond this way. They bow their heads, and they worship. They simply obey God. They don't bicker and complain like they had in the past. They don't rail or get mad at Moses like they had in the past. They just simply bow their heads, they worship, and they obey God specifically. 
So that, that's just the setup. That's just the instructions. Now God, and he, he goes about and he actually carries this plague out. God had threatened Pharaoh. There was no more time to wait. God had prepared his people. There was no more time to wait. Everybody knew what was happening that night. Some had been warned to hardening. Some had been warned to softening. Some prepared in faith and others rejected and ignored God's warning. But everybody, every single family, every single house that night in ancient Egypt, they would experience death. And the reason that every single family, every single house, all throughout the land of Egypt would experience death is because every single family deserved to experience death. The Egyptian sin, think about this, the Egyptian sin was obvious. They hated God. They hated God's people. Their leader, Pharaoh, repeatedly rejected the word of God. The Egyptians deserved death because of their sin. But so did the Israelites. They also deserve death. And you say, wait, wait, wait. The Israelites were God's people. True. But they were also sinners. Over the years, many of them had accumulated Egyptian gods, Egyptian deities. And so they were worshiping false idols. They regularly forsook the ways of God. They complained and grumbled against Moses. They were sinners, idolaters, rebels, grumblers. Therefore, they too deserved death. Every family all throughout Egypt was going to experience death because every family all throughout Egypt deserved to experience death. The only question was who and how. Now imagine that night. Just go back and and go there with me. Can you imagine what that might be like? God passed by every single house, one by one by one. And the only distinguishing mark between those where the firstborn was slain and those houses where the firstborn wasn't slain was the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. House to house to house. No blood on the doorpost, death to the firstborn. A cry goes up, wailing, mourning, and weeping. House to house to house. There's blood on the doorpost. It's a sign to God. He sees the blood. Death has already come to this house. Blood has already been spilled for sin. The blood of the lamb was spilled in this house. So God passes over. House to house to house. The, the cries just call out. The, the wailing rises up. The mourning multiplies all throughout the land of Egypt. Now, put yourself in this story. Put yourself in this story. What would you do if you were one of God's people and you're huddled in the back of your tiny little slave house. You've got the blood painted, brushed on your doorpost with barely a door frame. And you're huddled in the back. Where do you put your trust? Where do you put your hope? Where do you put your faith when the destroyer comes outside your house? Where do you put your faith? I'll tell you where you put your faith. You put your faith in the blood of the lamb on your doorpost. The blood that is sprinkled and splashed on your doorpost, that's where you put your faith. Not your blood, not your ability to shield your son or shut out the screams or the cries. Not your ability to feel bad for your sin or feel bad for your suffering. You put your faith, you put your hope 
only in the blood that is on your doorpost. Your only shot, your only chance, your only hope at life is that God might see the blood and spare your life. You're huddled in the back corner and you're saying, Oh God, Don't give me what I deserve. I've got my idols packed in my bag. I have complained and grumbled. I have forsaken your ways. God, don't give me what I deserve. Oh God, see the blood. See the blood. Please see the blood. And God sees the blood. He passes over. Your son, your firstborn is safe. He's there, he's near to you, he's close to you, huddled against your chest. God saw the blood, he spared your son. And then it dawns on you that you too are the firstborn. And you're still breathing. God saw the blood, he spared your life. Now, this is crucial to understand in the story. God did not make peace with their sin. God wasn't suddenly okay with their sin. Not the Egyptians, nor the Israelites. God is righteously violent towards all sin. Whether it's the Egyptians, or the Israelites, or my sin, or your sin. The Passover story tells us that someone must pay for sin. Blood must be shed. There must be blood. The idols that you've got packed in the secret compartments of your heart, they require blood. You're grumbling and complaining against the people that God has put in your life. That requires blood. Your anger and bitterness toward God for how your life has worked out, that requires blood. Your addictions that seem to salve your soul for a few minutes and then drop you back in the pit of despair, they require blood. And your puffed up performance that is fueled by pride requires blood. For God to forgive your sin, it requires blood. Blood is necessary. The only question is, whose will it be? Whose will it be? And we, we know our blood isn't enough. It won't suffice. We've even tried this sometimes through cutting, self-harm, self-torture. Others who, um, they've tried it through a long list of rules that they try to always obey or perfectionistic tendencies. Others just shrug it off and say, oh man, don't worry about that. I know my blood, my efforts, my attempts, they're never going to atone for all my faults and failures. Let's just forget about it. We know deep down instinctively that our efforts, our attempts, our blood won't suffice. But we also know that God... God has made it clear. He requires blood. Therefore, this is the good news. We need a lamb. A perfect, pure, and spotless lamb who has never sinned with absolutely pure blood. Church, his name is Jesus, right? Born of a virgin. His blood was untainted, absolutely pure from start to finish in his life. We need a lamb, one who lived sinless, endured suffering, no bickering, complaining, or grumbling church. His name is 
Jesus, right? He was tried. He was tempted, but he was found absolutely faithful and true to the very end. We need a lamb, one who never lied, never cheated, never two-faced anybody. In church, his name is Jesus. And 1 Peter says, no deceit was found in his mouth. You need a lamb, one whose blood can take away your sin, cleanse your conscience, and set you free from the religion that binds you. Set you free from the rebellion that binds you. And once again, church, his name is Jesus. His blood is enough for you. His blood is enough for you. When Jesus Christ showed up on the scene, To start his public ministry, his cousin, John the Baptizer, said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And then three years after that, on Palm Sunday, this same Jesus Christ, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, right about the same time that shepherds from all over the region are trying to herd their little lambs into the city so that they can sell them to families who are going to observe the Passover. And about four days later, Jesus is huddled into an upper room with his 12 disciples. And he's remembering, he's telling the story of the Passover while families all throughout the city of Jerusalem are doing exactly what God had told them to do. They too are remembering the Passover. And then on that fateful day, Jesus Christ is crucified right outside the city while thousands upon thousands of little lambs are slaughtered and little eyes are crying and families are doing what they were supposed to do, remembering the Passover. Inside Jerusalem, it it was chaotic. It was loud, it was bustling, and blood was flowing right outside Jerusalem. Jesus Christ, uh, uh, crushed, bruised, and slain, the Lamb of God was taking away the sin of the world. And then it went dark. The light of the world, he was plunged into the depths of darkness. He died, and there was blood. There must be blood to forgive your sin and my sin. Now, that's the story of the Passover. Both many thousands of years ago in ancient Egypt and when the Passover reached its culmination, its deepest, fullest meaning in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the Passover lamb. That's a story, and I just took you on a history lesson and connected it to Christ. But what might that mean for us? What can we take away from that story? I just want to give one simple application tonight, and that is this. Church, friends, lift up your eyes off of your sin and fix them on the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, you've sinned today. I'm pretty confident in that. I have sinned today. Last week, last month, last year, are all stockpiled with my sins and the shame that comes with them. Shame does that to us. Shame, it holds us trapped in the prison of past sin. It'd be like 
I'm the dad in ancient Egypt, and I'm in my slave house, huddled into the back, and all around me I hear the screams, and I've got all these memories, these memories of forsaking the ways of God. I remember whenever I kind of added some Egyptian deities into my mixture of trying to worship God, and I started worshiping these false idols. I remember when I forgot the words of God. I remember whenever I got mad and yelled at my wife or uh, neglected my kids. I remember my sin. And so I'm huddled back there and I'm thinking, I'm considering, oh, I hope he doesn't see my sin. I don't want to get in trouble for my sin. What about my sin? What about this that I said? What about this that I did? Oh, my sin, my sin, my sin. All I'm thinking about is my sin. All he's seen is the blood. It's the blood that atones for our sin. It's the blood that delivers us from the wrath of God. It's the blood that sets me free from the shame that wants to hold me down. Oh, church, lift your eyes up off of your sin and fix them on the precious and wondrous blood of Jesus Christ. The fact that God would do that at all is kind of shocking. But even more shocking and more relieving is when God does that for us. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God showed his love for us when? While we were still sinners. At our dirtiest, at our worst, our most rebellious, and our most religious. That is when God showed his love for us. That is when Jesus, the the Lamb of God, spilled his blood for us. While we were still huddled in that back corner, refusing to let go of our bitterness towards God, refusing to let go of our pride, refusing to let go of our secret sins and hidden idols or open rebellion, in that moment, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At our worst, God gave his best. At our worst, God gave his blood. How precious is this blood? How powerful is this wonderful blood of Jesus? The Lamb of God, he has accomplished among us all that we cannot. He has attained perfection, paid the price, and spilled his blood to wash away our sin. And so I wonder tonight, if there's some of you here and you'd say, You know, Doug, like, I'm still trapped in that prison of past sin. That's me. The the, the shame is overwhelming. And so I want to encourage you tonight. Lift up your eyes off that sin and fix them on the blood of Jesus. Hear me. His blood is enough for that sin. You got nothing else to pay. You got nothing else to earn. You got nothing else to prove. His blood is enough for that past sin. And some of you would say, you know, Doug, for me, it's not past sin. It's, it's right now sin. It's present sin. I brought it in my purse tonight. It's on my phone. I got, I got plans for once I leave here, man. What urgent yet delightful, wonderful, good news for you that God isn't waiting for you to get fixed up. He's not waiting for you to get figured out. Christ died for you while you were still sinning. 
He's showing his love for you while you are still sinning. So even now, in this moment, his blood can wash you clean. Lift up your eyes off that present, current, right now sin and fix them on the eternal, wondrous, and divine blood of Jesus Christ that can wash you clean right now. No more focus on the sin. Lots of focus. Lots of looking. Lots of gazing onto the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood is enough for you even when you're stuck in the middle of it right now, look to his blood. Would you pray with me now? Oh, Jesus, would you give us eyes to see all that you have done for us? The Passover isn't merely a history lesson. It's just not a cool story from an ancient empire called Egypt. It's a very present reality, even now through Jesus Christ and his blood that he spilled for us. So Jesus, would you give us eyes to see? Give us a revelation. Some of us right now, all we can see is our sin. All we can see right now are mistakes we've made or the chains that we feel like are binding us or ways that we've hurt others or ways that they have hurt us. Oh, Jesus, would you open us up, um, remove the veil, give us a revelation of your blood even now. And let us respond much like your people did back in Egypt. Let us bow our heads and worship. May your blood fuel a movement of obedience towards you. Not to try to get back in your good graces, not to try to earn things, but because we've seen the blood and we know that you've seen the blood, it fuels a movement of obedience towards you, God. Help us. Help us, please. Tonight, we're going to respond in a couple of different ways. One of those ways is by taking communion together. So if you're here to serve communion, you can go to the back and take the bread and the juice and then come to your place. But really, communion is a, it's a retelling of the story of the Passover. Every time we take communion, Jesus said, this is my blood. This is my body given for you. And so I want you to do this where you are before you come forward to take communion. Pray, talk to God, ask him, help me to run under your blood, to be washed by your blood, to know that I am clean, and then come forward and celebrate by taking communion, taking a piece of the bread, dipping it in the juice, and then bringing it in. Let me pray one last time, and then we're going to take communion and sing. Father God, we thank you for your plan, all that you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ, and his spilled blood for us. We worship you now by taking communion. We worship you now by singing to you and celebrating and praising all that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.